Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself, What would kids do? Then pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 80. According to the Human Rights Campaign, in 2015, attitudes about transgender people began to shift significantly in the United States. Now, this is likely due in some part to attitudes changing about same-sex marriage, and that has boosted the signal of other LGBT issues. And because of this, many cities have passed ordinances guaranteeing equal rights to transgender individuals. But anytime there's a shift like this in a social issue, there's also a backlash. Houston, Texas, for example, received national attention when people there voted to repeal their anti-discrimination ordinance thanks to the efforts of religious groups opposed to the idea of transgender people using the bathroom that matches their gender identities. They used the slogan in Houston, no men in women's bathrooms. Currently, there are 13 states considering bills like the one in Houston that would repeal hard-fought anti-discrimination city ordinances. Within this climate, amid this social change, Two political scientists traveled to Miami, Florida. David Brockman. David Brockman, assistant professor at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And Joshua Kalla. My name is Joshua Kalla, and I'm a PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley, where I study political science and I study how voters make and change their minds. Brockman and Kala traveled to Miami to try and extend a piece of research that had recently received a lot of media attention. A paper in the journal Science showed that a 20-minute conversation at the doorstep of a person opposed to same-sex marriage could change that person's mind about that topic if you used a very specific persuasion technique. They wondered if that technique called deep canvassing would also work on reducing prejudice toward transgender people. And Miami seemed like a perfect choice because they were about to face a very similar political situation to that of Houston. Last December, the Miami-Dade County Council added gender identity to their non-discrimination law. And folks in the LGBT community uh, were preparing for a ballot measure similar to what happened in Houston that would attempt to repeal that gender identity clause from the non-discrimination law. Deep canvassing was developed about eight years ago and has been developing for about eight years at the Leadership Lab, a division of the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Members of the Leadership Lab traveled to Miami and teamed up with a Florida LGBT organization called SAVE so they could teach that technique to canvassers there and go door-to-door talking with voters who might be transphobic, who might be opposed to that ordinance. And Brockman and Kella wanted to see if deep canvassing would work as it had in the previous study. Would it change people's minds about transgender rights in the same way it had about same-sex marriage? Save the local LGBT group in Miami was very open to to trying this new canvassing technique and to cooperating with the folks from the Los Angeles LGBT Center. And that led to a, a really great collaboration between these two practitioner groups that that gave us something exciting to study. And to be a little more specific, if we were on a scale from zero to 10, where zero is you're 100% against, 10 is 100% in favor of including them in the non-discrimination laws, and five, somewhere in the middle, and then you have your whole scale there. Where do you think you'd put yourself? Mm-hmm. Six. Six, okay. What would be a reason you would vote This for is a conversation or? from right after Miami. A canvasser is at a stranger's door, building rapport, and just asking questions, trying to understand why she's conflicted about transgender rights. 
I wouldn't want that around children. Mm-hmm. People could pretend to be and go after our kids. I mean, mm-hmm. that's something big to think about, and that probably would change a lot of people's minds. You know someone who yes, is transgender? I, you... I have someone in my family. So is transgender? Mm-hmm. Um, cool. How are you? How are you related to them? It's my nephew. Your well, nephew. Or niece, nephew, niece, whatever. Niece. Okay. Okay. So she. Um, he was born a boy, and, uh, but he wants to be a girl. Okay. Has how much has she talked to you about that at all? Um, actually, that's funny because um, he felt like uh, I'm not quite comfortable with it, so mm-hmm. he stopped talking to me because seeing him with the wig, I mean, with the hair and the lipstick, and it's hard when you sure. when you when I raised him when he was a baby, he was a boy. I mean, it was but he felt like I don't accept it. Right. Do you know why um, they feel that way? Canvassers who use this technique ask questions and listen, helping the person on the other side to drill down and discover where their opinions come from. Most of all, they avoid an argument and instead try to remain open and non-judgmental and serve as a sort of psychological mirror so the person on the other side can discover how they truly feel, maybe for the first time. And they do that by avoiding abstractions and hypotheticals and instead focus on real, lived experiences. That way, the person they are talking to can explore why they feel the way they feel and if it matches evidence from their own lives. And if those feelings are the result of careful contemplation or if they came from somewhere else. React that way. Wow. Um, Maybe that's the way I kind of reacted towards him without saying it, but the way I guess I was acting. As mm-hmm. if, it's like, don't come around me. That's really weird. Yeah, I, I can honestly, I mean, no one Now you make me feel bad because... No, 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 I'm, I'm definitely not trying to... I mean... I think it's really complicated. I didn't even think about it like that. Like, if I was in his position, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to, mm-hmm. you know... I never thought about it that way. Um, I'm wondering if... Is there a At time times... It's a lot like therapy. And as one of the members of the lab told me, in a way, you're just there to help that person unload some baggage. And people are eager to talk to canvassers once they get past that awkward first moment or two. Conversations routinely reach 20 minutes or more. What were some of the things that happened? Um, well, with this workplace that I work at, I don't really want to go into details about that, but because I'm from somewhere else, some of the girls I feel like were, like, like didn't like me, or knick-knack picked at me, or said things, like, I should go back where I was at. In Miami, not every time, but often, after one of these conversations, a person who initially felt opposed to transgender rights would change their mind. Yeah. I don't see no problem mm-hmm. with that. I mean, you mm-hmm. should be able to. I guess that's what probably what my nephew was going to do. Right, should be I'm able sure. to. Yeah. Yeah. I never really thought about all that like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But that makes sense. So that could then bring you back to this, to this rating scale. It's one last time where zero is you were not 100% vote against including transgender people in non-discrimination laws, and 10 is you would 100% vote in favor of it, and then everywhere in the middle on a scale. I would totally vote in favor of it. Totally vote in favor? Yeah. Like a 10? Yes. All right. I mean, because it's, it's also only right. I mean, let a person be who they are. You know? Right. Hiding it is worse, so let them out. Absolutely. I, I believe that. Like, everybody should have the right to be who they, who they want to be. Canvassing had made national headlines before Brockman and Kellogg began studying it. The leadership lab had asked Donald Green, a professor, a very famous professor of political science at Columbia University, to study them about a year earlier to see if the technique truly worked. Green and his co-author, UCLA graduate student Michael LaCour, observed, recorded, and studied them. And eventually, LaCour and Green produced a research paper that showed, yeah, the technique did work. 
and their paper was published in the prestigious journal Science, and it became huge, huge news. Not only did I do a show about this, but so did This American Life. In fact, both of our episodes came out on the same weekend, and before that, it had been covered by the New York Times and dozens of other publications. It was everywhere. It seemed like the Leadership Lab had cracked the code of how to change people's minds on divisive social issues, and more importantly, how to effectively reduce prejudice in the hearts of strangers. They had solved a major puzzle of the internet age with its endless arguments and social media meltdowns. You can bring people over to your way of seeing things, if you know how. For me, this was also the beginning of my next book. After the episode, I prepared to fly to Los Angeles and meet the members of the Leadership Lab in person to train with them and to go out with them on canvases. But before I left, I received an email from Donald Green and then a phone call. When Brockman and Calla tried to extend the research using Green and Liqueur's methodology, they had discovered something strange. Yeah, so... Um... First, I would say that I would probably call this more an extension of the original liqueur and green study than a replication, uh, just because we really were trying to apply it to a different issue with a slightly different intervention. Um, really trying to build on those principles, but it wasn't a, a replication in the sense of how um, most folks use replication, where you're trying to apply the same exact technique to see, see how it reproduces. Um, but what we... What we did is we were really trying to use the experimental methodology described in the original paper uh, to, to design our extension study and to figure out things like how many voters uh, volunteers need to talk to and how many people we need to recruit to our survey. And both in kind of piloting our experiment and also just digging into the data, uh, we found things that seemed a little bit irregular. And as we continue to dig, we, we documented a number of statistical irregularities that we, we turn into that report on um, irregularities in Liqueur 2014. Irregularities in Liqueur was the title of the paper Brockman and Calla released along with Peter Aronow in April of 2015 that revealed that they had found what appeared to be outright fraud in the original research. Part of the research involved getting people to fill out online surveys so their attitudes could be tracked over time. That way, the researchers could see if the change lasted or if it faded away. The number of people Michael LaCour had been able to get to take those surveys, the response rate, was way, way larger than what Brockman and Calla could achieve in their pilot studies. So they contacted the survey company to see what they were doing wrong. But the survey company said they hadn't been part of the original research at all it started to appear as though maybe those surveys had never, ever been conducted in the first place, which would explain the unusual response rate. That discrepancy led to further investigations that uncovered previous survey results from another study, which seemed very similar to those presented by LaCour. And so the possibility that maybe he had copied his results from that different study began to seem more and more likely. Brockman and Calla brought their findings to Donald Green, who then confronted LaCour. And I spoke with Donald Green on the phone after all this happened. He and LaCour had been on the podcast together talking about the research. And Green told me that after this happened, he asked LaCour to produce the computer files containing the survey results. And LaCour claimed those files had been deleted accidentally. But Green said it was later revealed they had never been recorded at all. Green's confrontations with LaCour over all of this, were accompanied by a witness, and soon after, Green asked for a retraction, and science gave it to him. Science retracted the study. And this, of course, led to another barrage of media attention, except this time, it was a scandal. And it kind of got muddled in all of that, that the leadership lab had nothing to do with any of this. It was just this one graduate student, and it was the research that was fraudulent, not the technique that they were researching Green expressed great sadness and embarrassment over the matter, and he said that he felt the people most hurt in all of this were the canvassers who had opened up their lives to them and agreed to be researched in the first place, and he added that he believed that this retraction should not reflect poorly on the subject matter. 
Yeah, I think it's important to remember that when science retracted the original study, that meant that the the canvassing approach of the Los Angeles LGBT Center uh, wasn't false. It was just unproven. It went from being, here's one study proving that this effect this is effective, to now there are no studies one way or the other speaking to the effectiveness of the canvassing approach. So the retraction didn't mean that the approach itself was tainted or ineffective. It just meant it was a new approach that had not been studied yet. And by that point, um, I think David Brockman had gone to Miami and had canvassed um, with the folks there on the um, transgender equality script. I had um, listened to audio and had had um, dozens of hours of phone calls with the, the folks implementing the canvas. And we were still really excited about the possibility that this canvassing could be effective at changing attitudes towards transgender people. But it's, it's really important to remember that retraction doesn't mean um, something is disproven. It just means it's unproven. After uncovering LaCour's fraud... Brockman and Calla decided that they would go ahead and do their study. And they would dot all their I's and they would cross all their T's. And they would see if indeed deep canvassing truly, truly worked. Up next, after this break, you will hear what they found. I'm David McCraney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Last year, I began working on a new book about how people change their minds. And for that book, I've been interviewing people who have experienced drastic mind changes, like former cult members, conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, people like that. And I've been interviewing people who professionally change the minds of other people, cult deprogrammers, skeptics, scientists, activists, and so on. It was in researching that second group that I came across deep canvassing. Most canvassing has nothing to do with changing people's minds. Instead, it's taken as a given that you can't change people's attitudes about divisive social issues. Instead, you just figure out where the people who are most likely to vote for your candidate live. Then you go to their houses and you knock on their doors and you ask them to please, 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 please actually go and vote in the upcoming election. Deep canvassing is different. It wasn't really invented as much as it was discovered. And it all started with Dave Fleischer. I direct the Leadership Lab, which is a very small part of the Los Angeles LGBT Center. The LGBT Center in Los Angeles is the largest such organization on the planet, with a budget of more than $83 million a year. They have a clinic, a pharmacy, activities, support, and they mostly provide health care. But the Leadership Lab is the political action arm of that center, and they take up about 1% of that budget. Our uh, mission is the long game. It's really to figure out practical ways to reduce prejudice and to not only develop best practices for doing that, but then to share those around the country, helping develop LGBT leaders so that we can reduce prejudice and get more voters on our side. In 2008, activists were working around the clock to stop Proposition 8, a ballot measure that threatened to make same-sex marriage in California illegal. Polls showed that voters there were still evenly split. It seemed possible, though unlikely in a place like California, that the vote might fail. But in the end, it did. Citizens went to the ballot box, and 52% of those who voted voted against same-sex marriage. And the LGBT community had expected 
to prevail. All the polling showed that our side would prevail. The experience of LGBT people on a day-to-day basis in California uh, is often very positive because where people live, that's, you know, they've chosen to live in places where it's pretty positive. So it was a real shock when we lost. In the aftermath, canvassers that had worked so hard to stop this outcome wondered, what next? What can we do now? And uh, shock almost doesn't do justice to it. People were uh, so furious and humiliated and really didn't know what to do. The primary question on many LGBT people's minds was, why did they vote against us? And that's when Dave came up with a plan that would turn out to be a radical idea. He said, let's just go ask. Why don't we recruit a team of people and go to talk to the voters who voted against us and find out why they did that? It was a huge undertaking. And soon they began to record those conversations, first audio, then video. And then they would get together and watch those conversations and note what worked and what didn't. And over time, over years, through iteration, throwing away what didn't work and keeping what did, they began to zero in on the kind of conversation that can shift a person's attitude. Deep canvassing began to come into focus, and it seemed to work really, really well. And over the next several years, we had more than 12,000 conversations, David. That's when they brought the scientists in to see if they were doing something that was real or if they were just under the spell of confirmation bias. The first batch of research was completed, and that's when Brockman and Calla got involved, and that's when Brockman and Calla discovered the fraud in the first batch of research, and they helped get that retracted. And then, more or less, they started over with a scientific blank slate in Miami where the LGBT Center and SAVE went door-to-door, deep canvassing, to have conversations with voters about transgender rights. Before and after the canvassing for the experiment took place, I, I also went to, to participate firsthand to, to really experience uh, what these conversations are like. That's Josh Calla again. He and Brockman, they visited several times. They observed, and as he said, they participated in these canvases. The groups, they would get together, they would prep all morning, and then before noon, they would go out several Saturdays in a row. And Calla told me this was, this was unique, a unique experience for science, because before this, when you're studying how to reduce prejudice, usually it's done through observational studies, looking at who people are friends with and whether or not they're prejudiced, or laboratory studies that do things like bring employees into diversity training workshops every day for a year and then record the outcome. In this kind of research, there weren't very many real-world field studies like this. The canvassing here was pretty unique, where just on a random Saturday morning, some smiling volunteer would knock on your door and start talking to you about prejudice. Like if I was going to like design a technique from the ground up, I would going to their front door and knocking on it would not be the, my first choice. It would feel like you know I'm a, I'm inviting catastrophe right off the bat. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm inviting someone to um, to to be defensive. And I mean, you're you're there's a visceral thing of like you're at my house right now. You know, walking. I was watching. Uh, Judge Judy, and now I'm talking to you about transgender rights. It just feels um, counterintuitive on the face of it. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that really surprised me is that most voters are actually really willing and excited to have these conversations. I think conditional on someone opening their door, about 70% of people actually finish the conversation, uh, which I find to be a a really high number. Uh, And that, that surprised me a little bit. And I think... Part of the reason why the volunteers are so effective is that the folks from the leadership lab really preach this notion of radical hospitality from the first minute a volunteer shows up on a Saturday morning uh, to when they leave that Saturday afternoon. They are um, just treated as amazing guests and everyone goes out of their way to be friendly and welcoming. And then throughout the training, the volunteers are, are taught how to be friendly and welcoming to the voter. 
and they're taught how to actively listen to the voter and to share stories with the voter in such a way where the they can build rapport with the voter and the voter can hopefully become comfortable and start to open up and have genuine, honest conversations about prejudice. I have to both know what kind of experience the volunteers are coming in with. So how a training is going, a training is going to be very different if it's a group of first time canvassers versus a group that's been canvassing for, you know, the last several months or several years. That's Laura Gardner. She heads up the training of new volunteers at the Leadership Lab. So my name is Laura Gardner, and I am the National Mentoring Coordinator at the Leadership Lab. I've been to three of these training sessions in Los Angeles, and they are incredibly well-organized and fun. The staff stand at the head of the room with a paper easel and markers, and the volunteers, they separate into pods, small rings of chairs, each with a veteran of the process as pod leader. For about an hour and a half, the principles of deep canvassing are laid out one by one, and at each step, the pods break out into huddles, or as they call them, puddles, to engage in mock conversations using each technique as they are described one at a time. People take turns being the canvasser and the person at the door, and at least in my experience, you find yourself exploring sensitive parts of your life, becoming vulnerable with the people in your group, and learning about yourself in ways you didn't expect going in. I think it's just so essential that we're prioritizing what is it that we really want them to be focused on learning or improving, because as you've experienced yourself, there are just so many parts of our canvassing conversations there and the canvas as a whole. Every single part of the canvas training, we could probably spend five times as much time training on. Um, so it's really about prioritizing the skills that are going to, that are most needed, kind of the order of skills for canvassers um, so that you're really setting them up for success so that they can have a, a good enough experience and feel like they made um, progress in their own way and want to come back again. Yeah, you won't get it right the first time and you may fail several times before you kind of catch on to the the art of what they're doing. And like I said earlier, the technique itself can seem at times like therapy. It has Shades of cognitive behavioral therapy in it, Rogerian therapy built in, you know, rooting around for people's core beliefs, but doing so by asking questions and listening, acting as a conversational mirror for the other party. But it can also feel like speed dating, since there are also hints of psychologist author Aaron's intimacy research and his self-expansion model. And of course, they use some of the principles of persuasion developed by Robert Cialdini building rapport, encouraging people to be consistent internally and externally. And there's even some Socratic method built in there. But none of this was by design. The team didn't read about these things and incorporate them. Instead, as Laura and the rest of the team say, it was all discovered in the field. Yeah, that's that's the impressive thing about the, the center is that they kind of settled on this technique, as far as I can tell, from just trial and error. I think it would have, I think maybe optimistically we would have thought that we could Make an impl- we could um, make an impact with some voters who voted against us. But because we had just absolutely no idea what we would find at the doors, it was hard at, from the very beginning to as- assume that anything could happen that, was, that you know, ended up being as effective as what we now have. I think when we started, it was purely from this place of curiosity. So, you know, we didn't even know if they would open their doors Or if they were going to talk to us, they would talk to us for how long, if they would be honest with us. So every single piece of that was an aha moment. They've been canvassing on LGBT issues since the the loss on Prop 8. Um, They've been canvassing since 2009, going out every couple of weeks and having hundreds of conversations with voters and filming those conversations and analyzing that film to see what seems to be working and what doesn't seem to be working. Once it became clear the voters would talk to us, it did become like an exciting challenge. If I was to speak just personally, it did feel like this exciting psychological challenge. I don't I don't come from a background of studying psychology or anything. And through this iterative process, they seem to have discovered something that is really, really effective and is consistent with the psychological theories. But uh, as far as I know, I don't think Dave Fleischer started by reading a bunch of psych journals and going from there, but instead it was this more inductive process. There was something about this epiphany we had over the first couple years about, wow, you know, these people 
they don't, they don't think of themselves as prejudiced people. They, they want to be supportive of everybody. And yet there's clearly something holding them back. Like what has happened to them throughout their life? Because, you know, no, these people are not born prejudiced. So what has happened to them throughout their life? What experiences have they had? What interactions with LGBT people or just the world around them and how the world treats LGBT people that has influenced them to have these negative feelings or stereotypes and assumptions? So I think it was that, like, realization that that's kind of what was at play um, in influencing their vote, ultimately, that... um, I guess would be like the psychological perspective I had, even though it was really just an intense curiosity that I was most focused on. So what did Brockman and Calla's study show? As the canvassers went from door to door, the study was framed like a medical trial. Half of the households received an intervention that's the deep canvassing technique, and half of the households received a placebo, a conversation about recycling. As you heard in the conversation earlier in the episode, the attitude change, if it occurred, was recorded at the door, and through some pretty sneaky hidden survey techniques, those same people were tracked for months afterward to see if the mind change stuck, or if the person's peer group reasserted its influence three days, three weeks, six weeks, and three months, we compare compare the average response of people who receive the real transgender equality canvas to the average response that people gave who received the, the recycling placebo canvas. And what we find is that over time, the, the difference on that transgender tolerance scale between the treatment group and the placebo group is somewhere around uh, 0.25 or 0.3 standard deviations. Uh, which is a a really large and significant um, treatment effect. And understanding standard deviations can can be a little bit tricky, but what this effect is comparable to is the average opinion change that occurred from 1998 to 2012 towards gay men and lesbians in the United States. Now, if you're like me, you like to hear percentages because it helps things make a lot more sense to you. So I asked Josh Kella if he could provide a percentage of mind change. Um, but to a, to a first approximation, what we can say is that the treatment generated about uh, 10 new supporters for every 100 conversations they had. It would be fair to say around 10%. Around 10%, yeah. But that, it's an approximation, um, but around 10%. Now, if 10% doesn't sound like much, you're not a political scientist because it is huge. A mind change of much less than this could easily change laws or turn the tide of an election. Um, but almost more exciting for me than the, the magnitude of that treatment effect is how long that treatment lasted. Um, we find that it lasted for at least three months, uh, which is a very long time and almost unheard of in the political science research. Uh, and we find that this effect remains even after people are exposed to opposition messaging. So we took some of the campaign ads that folks have used when they've tried to oppose transgender rights um, at the ballot. And we showed voters these ads. And we see that even after voters see those opposition ads, and even after we try to persuade them to oppose transgender rights, those who receive the treatment canvas still remain more supportive of transgender rights than those who did not. So in other words, the technique works. And this News has generated a second blast of media attention. The story now is one of vindication. And I asked Laura what she thought when she heard the news that this whole funky affair, the the fraud, the scandalous media attention, all that stuff, it might be behind them. It felt wonderful to finally have some scientific proof and be measured for real in a way that prove that we can lastingly reduce prejudice toward transgender people. There's something about having an independent assessment of your work that's really validating and having other people who haven't experienced it in the same way now start to understand and appreciate its effectiveness, I think was just really, it felt great, you know? And so I think when the fraud was uncovered, that was that was hard because all of a sudden it felt like even though we still had faith in the model most folks were like, oh, well, I guess that was too good to be true, you know? And so I think there was just like a 
don't know, selfish happiness of now everyone can really appreciate how what we're doing is really having a positive impact and not just a positive impact because we're reducing prejudice in these conversations, but that it lasts. It, it lasts up to nine months. Um, and that's just unprecedented, right? Is this unprecedented? I don't know. I asked Josh Calla if he knew, and he said he didn't. But he did have this to say. Yeah, I think I think this is how kind of how we think about the scientific process when we're in grade school, where David and I heard about this really exciting study, and we wanted to see how we could build on that study. And you know, while we were trying to build on that study, we we noted some irregularities, but then we we still conducted the study we wanted to conduct, and we we learn something that we find really cool and exciting and hopefully other folks find it exciting as well. And we'll continue to build on and replicate our results because science, science works in that iterative process and, and hopefully more people will, will start studying this. Wait a second, though. So deep canvassing works, okay, but how does it work? We ask that question next, after this break. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'm David McCraney, and this is the final segment about deep canvassing. So the research suggests that deep canvassing works, but how does it work? I asked Steve DeLine what he thought. So my name is Steve DeLine, and I am a field organizer at the Leadership Lab at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Steve is one of the people who has spent the most time considering just what is happening at those doorsteps. And he said that when new people come in to learn the method, which, by the way, many people do. While I was there, I met people from around the country who had pilgrimaged to meet the team and learn deep canvassing. And the technique is being tested around the country on topics like climate change and vaccination. And when they teach this technique to new people, Steve and Laura told me there's one thing that they tell them up front that usually catches them off guard. There is nothing you can say, there is nothing you can tell this person that's going to change their mind. You're trying to reduce prejudice. Um, Odds are good that it, it won't happen by delivering some talking points or some pieces of data. Um, these are very impersonal. And while they are interesting and sometimes can be really motivating to us, right, the base, our, our own base of folks who are supportive of trans people, uh, you know, they, there's nothing persuasive about a generic talking point. Well, it, above all else, we trust our own guts. We trust our own feelings and um, emotions and instincts. And we use those to guide us when we're making, when we're forming our opinions. And so um, oftentimes when we see facts or figures that don't align with our opinions, um, our, our gut instincts lead us to kind of just reject that like a, you know, like an unhealthy virus. Thinking about hypothetical situations that aren't rooted in reality are very ineffective. Things such as, well, what if you had a transgender child or... What if you came across, you know, a transgender person in the bathroom? These are just make-believe scenarios that it's easy for, a, for somebody to be able to think whatever they want about it. There's, I mean, there's so many reasons you can take to discount a piece of information or a fact or a figure. 
um, that are, are, I think our, our, you know, emotional cores lead us to just push that away because what we feel is more important is kind of maintaining our own sense of internal consistency. What is helpful for us is reality. What's helpful is people to actually think about, well, what do you do when you use the restroom? Right. And you just go into a stall. And and what's your experience with transgender people? Or what's your experience even noticing people around you in the restroom? I think being able to give people a reality check um, is super helpful. And if you, you are, you know, wanting to use a talking point or a fact, um, feel free to do so, but pair it with something that's much more personal. If we can resist the urge to do that, resist the urge to trust in our, you know, superior knowledge and instead try to uncover what it is in that person's own life and experience that might lead them to a common value or a common way of looking at things with us. If we can kind of seek common ground that way, suddenly we're in this whole different territory that, that can work. Not only actively listen to other people, but proactively get them to share vulnerable and emotional things that they wouldn't normally bring to bear on the topic. The only way they're going to change their mind is by changing their own mind, by talking themselves through their own thinking, by processing things they've never thought about before, things from their own life um, that are going to help them see things differently. I asked David Brockman and Joshua Kalla if they had any speculation or insights into why deep canvassing works as well as it does. Um, there's been a lot of research in the world of voter mobilization and voter turnout for many years uh, that's found that um, the key, and this is you know, work by David Nickerson and Chris Mann, I think shows this really gracefully, that um, if you, if this very same script um, very same words on a page. If you read them in a rushed way to somebody, will have no effect on their voter turnout. But if you train the people doing it to ask questions where people are supposed to respond and the other person kind of has no choice but to either be rude or actually talk back to you and therefore have to do thinking about what to say and have to think through what you're saying, um, that, that if doing that, having people do mental work um, is what leads um, to effects uh, in that world and also to effects that seem to last in the world of persuasion. These techniques of getting people to expend mel- mental calories um, has been shown across various domains to, to be effective at producing long-term attitude change. Um, and this is that old Kahneman idea of um, thinking fast versus thinking slow, a system one versus system two thinking. One of the reasons why we thought that most persuasion just isn't lasting is that how campaigns tend to talk to voters is through that system one learning, that thinking fast rather than thinking slow. It's, it's through 30-second TV ads or campaign mailers. So people might notice that mailer for a day, and it might change their thoughts for a day. But very quickly, they're going to return to their previously held beliefs. The idea being that in the persuasion context, um, there's been all this great work done for a while, pioneered by folks like um, Petty and Cassiopo and others, about how um, when someone's being persuaded, if they're thinking effortfully about the message, um, then they're much more likely to remember it and change their attitudes in a lasting way than if they are not thinking about it. So it's the difference between driving by a billboard and these kind of conversations where people are asking questions and thinking about what they're doing. When it comes to something like reducing prejudice, where you're trying to really build a social movement and, and change how society views an entire group, it's important to not just change attitudes for a day or two, but to really change someone's attitudes for a lifetime. And we want that kind of long-term attitude change. And we think it requires this effortful thinking, yet no one in politics does effortful thinking. So it's very exciting to see what the leadership lab does, where, where they really say, you know, it's up to the voter to persuade themselves. And it's up to the voter to think hard about these issues. And we as the canvassers are going to guide the voter on that journey. Kind of walking them through on that feeling level and uh, emotional level and through like, hey, maybe there's a, something that, you know, maybe there's some part of your worldview that actually does really align with this. And it's going to feel really good with you, say, supporting transgender people's, you know, access to the bathrooms. We just need to think about it together and give you a chance to, to, to ponder stuff maybe that you don't normally think about when they're going well. And what we try to create at every door is so, so much more of like, 
hey, this is not a competition. Let's see if we can like team up and like solve a mystery together. Let's see if we can team up and like cooperate to like think through things together. And there's not going to be like this pressure for you to like see things the way I do or, you know, for us to have to like prove anything to each other. Let's just offer stuff up together and see where it gets us. So it's like completely cooperative and not competitive. Brockman and Kala told me that they believe that one of the most taxing mental tasks, one that requires a lot of active processing, is something called analogic perspective taking. And this is a higher level cognitive ability, something that children aren't very good at, and you have to reach a certain age to even be able to perform this mental task effectively. And when you do, you take an analogy from your own life, and then you apply that analogy to someone else's. It's a technique used in high-level negotiations, like when nations negotiate peace and war. You may recall a few episodes back, we discussed this with psychologist Lee Ross, who said that when he has worked in the past in conflict resolution in Northern Ireland and in talks between Israel and Palestine, where the stakes are very high, where people want to meet, they rarely meet in order to come to understand the other side's perspective. Instead, both parties are only interested in communicating their own perspectives, like a person at a party who never listens and just waits for his turn to talk by coming up with more things to say while you're talking. Here's a quote from that show. What I have never experienced in 40 years of doing this is people who say, I really want to meet with the other side because I think I have things wrong. Hmm. I think I don't know the facts. I think my reasoning is askew. I think I'm biased. And I want to meet with the other side so that they can set me straight. I've never, ever had the experience of even a single individual tell me that. Everyone can empathize with other people. But taking it to the next level, giving up your own viewpoint for a while and trying on someone else's, that's really, really hard. That's why perspective taking is so powerful. Perspective taking is not just getting someone to feel sad and therefore you change their minds, um, but it really involves this much more rational approach of connecting someone's, someone's life, someone's experiences to the life and experiences of an outgroup. And this is a big part of deep canvassing. Everyone already knows that prejudice is bad. But that's just an empty fact. It's abstract. In deep canvassing, after you build rapport and after you make the issue seem like it affects the other person's life, because it does in some way, and after you engage their active processing by asking questions, after all of that priming, canvassers ask the other person about similar experiences from that voter's own life, times when they have felt ostracized or judged or made to feel lesser than, or if they've been on the receiving end of prejudice. Now, all of a sudden, when I say discrimination is wrong, uh, I'm, I'm feeling that in a different way. And I can now um, understand, oh, yeah, it's like it's really to be discriminated against and treated differently. I can see what it might be like to be that person. And all those things I just said before about how, how I might want to treat that group differently. Wow, I actually really don't want to do that because I remember what that's like. Perspective taking is just one of many aspects of human psychology that deep canvassing uses. And like Brockman and Kala have said many times, this is a technique that's sort of a kitchen sink approach to persuasion, which is why personally, I just think it's so fascinating. And considering this, I wondered where Brockman and Kala were focusing their research next. Yeah, I think um, this is only one study and this one study um, very exciting and provides a really great blueprint for LGBT advocates, but it, it also raises a number of questions. As we've talked about, there have been a number of psychological principles that have been built into this study. Um, things like active processing and perspective taking. Uh, there's the video that the canvassers share. There's stories that the canvassers share and that the voters share. Um, which aspects of this kind of kitchen sink approach are, are most effective? And I think the, the third set of questions kind of res revolve around um, if we can figure out what 
levers or mechanisms are most effective? Are there generalizable principles from this canvassing approach that can be applied to other issues? That kind of intermediate level of generalizability that, that I'm most interested in exploring is this question of how important it is to get people to tell stories from their life. So I think that's, that's, um, that's an idea out there that is kind of an old organizing principle. You see that in um, a lot of you know, the work by Cesar Chavez and you know, all of this old work um, and you know, Marshall Gans and going back to even you know, Saul Alinsky. And one of the key organizing principles there um, uh, in terms of building commitment of volunteers, and, and I'm sure I'll butcher it, but, but one key principle you see in a lot of their writing is the importance of having people um, tell their stories um, and, and talk about times when, for example, particular values became important to them. So that's kind of an old idea as well, um, but one that um, I'm sure I'll get a bunch of emails after this, which would be great uh, from all the folks who actually study this, but one that I've seen uh, less of um, explored um, quantitatively and kind of it's more, you know, you, you read it out in history books. So I think that intermediate principle of, so that kind of telling personal stories was the way that the LA LGBT Center got to perspective taking, but it also might be a way to um, get to lots of other psychological processes as well. So I think the bottom line, and both David Brockman and Joshua Kalla told me this, is that this is completely new territory. Oddly enough, we don't actually know very much about how to change people's minds, not scientifically. So the work of the Leadership Lab is offering something very valuable to psychology and political science. Uncharted scientific territory. Because we, we don't really know exactly why it works, right? It's sort of like you start off and, you know, there's this old wisdom from 2,500 years ago that if you would chew on this one tree bark, then you wouldn't get headaches. And later we realized that you know, that was aspirin. And now we, you know, then we distilled aspirin and now we know, okay, well, it's actually this particular chemical in aspirin, which is the active ingredient. Um, and it's like that where, you know, we're at the tree bark stage right now. We're like, hey, if you do this thing, you get effects, but we have no idea like what's doing the work or why or what the you know, underlying chemistry is. I, I, I guess my view on it is now the real work begins. In my new book about how minds change, I deeply explore the leadership lab, its techniques, the science behind it, and the scientists studying those topics. This whole show has been kind of a pre-excerpt. Look for that book in 2017. If you'd like to learn more about the leadership lab or contact Dave Fleischer, Laura Gardner, or Steve DeLine, you can contact them at leadership-lab.org. David Brockman is an assistant professor of political economy at the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and Joshua Kalla is a political science graduate student at UC Berkeley. I'll have their contact info in the show notes for this episode at youarenotsosmart.com, along with links to their research. Up next, a cookie, and then the final credits. Each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. Send those cookie recipes to David at youarenotsosmart.com. And if we pick out those cookies that you send in, if we pick out your cookie, Amanda, that's my wife, Mandy, she will cook that cookie. Then I will eat it right here on the show. And then we'll send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart or You Are Now Less Dumb book. Now, this cookie that comes to us from Deanna Klingbeal is, it was sent in, this was sent in four years ago. I am so sorry that we sort of pick and choose and go all around the, uh, 
the giant number of cookies we have sent in. You never know. We might pick one that was sent in to us this week, or we might pick one from years ago. This one's from years ago. Uh, she did not include any sort of message in the email, just straight up the recipe. And the recipe is for waffle cookies. And this is unsweetened chocolate and butter and eggs and sugar and salt and vanilla and cinnamon and flour and cocoa powder and butter and confectioner's sugar and cocoa powder and milk. And they are sort of, they're, that's, this is the recipe in my hand. They are really, really cool because you make them in a waffle iron. You just sort of throw the batter in there, close the waffle iron, and then open it up and you get these little waffles. It looks like someone made a big waffle. Well, it looks like someone accidentally uh, dumped cocoa powder into the waffle iron and said, oh no, what am I going to do? The only way to clean this up is to put cookie batter on top of it and then close this thing and open it up. And what do you know? Little dark waffles. And then there's a glaze that you put on these. You actually put the glaze in a plate and then you dip the waffles face first into that glaze, take them out, let it dry. And you have these glazed dark waffles that are made out of chocolate. So here we go. I'm going to try this right now. Oh, it is so much. Oh, the chocolate. I can smell it from a, a mile away. Here we go. Mm. Oh, that is so chocolate. Mm. Mm. The density of chocolate. Mm. Is so immense in this. I feel like my tongue. I feel like my tongue is on, is trapped in the temporal amber of this cookie's event horizon. Mmm. <laughs> As I chew, my mouth is trapped in a gravity well of cocoa, and every direction leads to more chocolate. Oh boy. This is the ultimate indulgence. I didn't know anything could be this chocolatey, and it's very easy to make if you have a waffle iron. Mmm. The texture is, well, um, it's a chocolate waffle, a super chocolate waffle. Oh, wow. Mm. We'll have the recipe up at the website. And mm, mm, mm. thank you, Deanna. You have punched a hole in the cookie universe with this crazy idea. So good. A book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. For more great podcasts like this one, go to boingboingpodcasts.com. For all the past episodes of this show, go to youarenotsosmart.com or SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. Follow this show on Twitter, at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McRaney. We're also on Facebook, slash You Are Not So Smart, and a bunch of other places. You can find all that at youarenotsosmart.com, where you can also find the show notes for this episode. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace, and the rest of the music, I'll just have that in the show notes. We use a lot of different artists in this episode. If you support us on Patreon, and I hope you do, you will get this show with no ads, and you get extra content. For this episode, I'm going to put a lot of these full interviews into the uh, extra content, and it'll be just tons of stuff. So check it out, patreon.com slash you are not so smart. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, 
how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.